I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, technology, what is it all about? We will have to reconceptualize who we are, what is our intelligence, what are we truly good at, what does beauty mean to us, Will we let an AI help raise our kids? How does it intersect with religion? All this will change, and we are not psychologically equipped for this. So this, I think, is the greatest danger. We'll manage, but it's going to be interesting, shall we say. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech this week. Man, it's a double feature. Get excited, everybody. So, in case you don't know, this coming week, Britain is hosting a very ballyhooed, very controversial AI safety summit. It will be emceed by the Prime Minister. The government has invited experts and politicians from around the world, including uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. And as part of this groundswell, this urgent desire by governments around the world to address the rise of AI, which everyone seems to agree is a technology that's going to change kind of everything from what it means to work, what has value, what information can be trusted. And of course, if our days as the dominant species on the planet are numbered because we're all going to be enslaved or otherwise killed, Terminator style. And in fact, on Monday, Joe Biden is going to be putting out an executive order specifically around AI regulation. There's a lot flying around. And so I thought, we need to talk about this. And I have two extremely smart, very well-qualified people on to talk about it this week. First up is Vinod Kosla. He's one of the living legends of Silicon Valley. He's a venture capitalist. Back in the day, he started or co-founded Sun Microsystems, which was kind of the company that powered uh, the early internet. He also backed Juniper Networks, a company that helped really build the backbone of the internet back in the day. And that was an investment that repaid its initial investment 2,500 times over. So, in short, Vinod has seen it all. His track record speaks for itself. He was, for example, the first investor in OpenAI, creator of ChatGPT. Anyhow, I managed to grab 20 minutes with Vinod at Effortless, a conference I went to last week at Levi's Stadium, put on by DevRev, which is an AI startup that Kosla is also an investor in. And we kind of do a lightning round of questions, and I promise you, you'll get a lot out of it, not least because Vinod has super strong views 
and zero compunction about sharing them. And then after that, we bring on Tyler Cohen. He's an economist at George Mason University, who Time Magazine once dubbed America's hottest economist. He is the author of Marginal Revolution, an influential blog and one of our most prominent public intellectuals. And he, too, has some very strong views on AI, what it means for society, where it sits in kind of the arc of history, and why he's convinced that it's an advance that is at least as profound as the printing press. Anyhow, I think after these two conversations, you'll be extremely well-armed when it comes to thinking about AI, which I think is important because there's a lot of doomerism out there. There's a lot of boomerism as well, that this is all going to just be wonderful. And I think as we try to figure out what it all means, we need help from smart people who can see the forest for the trees. And that's what you're about to get. So first up is Vinod Kosla of Kosla Ventures. Enjoy. You said on stage you've been doing this for 40 plus years. Can you orient us in terms of your view of where we are when you think about AI and the other big shifts like the arrival of the internet or what you guys are doing, you know, when you're doing it at Sun, Microsystems, et cetera, when you step back and look at the significance of where we are right now, how do you think about it? Well, there's sort of things related to the venture world. When the microprocessor arrived, two things happened. Sun happened because of it, and the PC happened. That was a platform. In 1996 is when the browser arrived. You know, I was part of Kleiner when we invested in uh, the browser, Netscape browser. Yeah, a little company called Netscape. A little company, but also a company called Juniper, which was building the backbone of the internet. Yes. People forget that. Legendary investment. Yeah. That was a platform, another platform. Microprocessor, networking, 2007, there was the iPhone, yep. and mobility became a platform. There were phones before them, but it became the first platform. In that context, that's how I look at AI. It's another platform. And once a platform appears with new capability, a lot of innovation happens around it. And I think we are seeing that innovation, the initial Cambrian explosion of applications happening around it. Now, to the question of how does it compare to the others, almost all the others, the microprocessor, the internet connectivity, basically, and then the platform, which is a mobile computer, which is always on you, they were powerful tools for human beings to use. But in the end, the driver for them was a human capability. I could do X, so I would use this tool to do X. I think AI, for the first time, we surpass human intellectual capability. Think of the start of the steam engine and the internal combustion engine. That was starting to match human muscle power. And we started amplifying it in all sorts of diverse ways. But it fundamentally was the start of amplify human power. Before that, we had passive devices, which was levers and things. But the engine allowed us to use external energy as human beings. Now, we ate food. That was our energy. That was essentially what we were limited to. And then the engine came, and we could use oil and steam and coal. And I think we, people haven't thought about it this way, but I think we're at the place where 
we surpass human intelligence capability, and obviously there's a dystopian version of it and a utopian version of it. I happen to subscribe to the utopian version. But this idea that you can do much more Mm. has not caught on with people. Yeah. My wife's doing a nonprofit called CK12. Goal's very simple. Give every kid on the planet a personal tutor that knows them well enough, knows where their gap in learning is, knows their style of learning. This kid likes to read versus this kid likes to watch a video or have a teacher. That extreme level of hyper-personalization and use it to teach the kid at their level, at their pace, in their style of learning. That's pretty stunning. We had Imad Mostak from Stability AI on the podcast probably six months ago who was talking about this very idea. Mm-hmm. And that's one small yeah. Well, sliver, my son's right? working on AI primary care doctor. So imagine a woman in Gaza today, yep. her sick kid is sick, having access to advice and care just stunningly important. Yeah. Same applies to a village in India or Africa or a town in India or Africa or London or pick your favorite. Human expertise becomes free and significantly enhanced over time. Uh, you know, it was probably 20 some years ago I did an uh, interview for Laura Holson in the New York Times. Mm. I said, at some point, it'll be interesting to ask what it means to be human. Do you think we're getting to that point? I think we're getting to that point. Well, this leads perfectly to my next question, which is I've seen you, including today, I believe, refer to this as kind of like the Manhattan Project, this technology. And in the context of this open versus closed debate, and I know you're, were you the very first open AI investor or one of the first? We were the first venture investor in open AI. We were also the first investor in other individuals invested when we invested. But we are the only venture investor, but we are also the first investor. I do want to come back to this Manhattan Project. Any powerful technology has Mm. good uses and bad uses. Nuclear bombs or nuclear power. Good and bad uses, that has been left up to humanity to choose what they Sometimes we do well, sometimes less well. Yeah. We can have biologic drugs with all the genetic uh, engineering, or we can engineer viruses. There is an aspect of this that has global implications in terms of do Western values win Mm. in the battle against China? And I give the Chinese the benefit of the doubt in they think they have a superior political system because it's better for most people, maybe not for every minority. It's, It's a different philosophy. And people are willing to give up their freedom of speech to have a better standard of living. They have a set of choices they made. We in the Western world have a different set of choices and values and things. I happen to prefer the Western one. And whoever wins this AI race will win the techno-economic war. Mm. From that will come economic influence at a scale. Imagine if you go to any part of the world and offer them free doctors and free tutors and free medicines and personalized medicine and as much music and art as they want and all those things. So economic power will derive from technology. Political influence will flow from economic generosity. And which value system wins is, at, is what's at stake in my view. 
So there's a lot of talk, and I'd love to get your view on kind of say, look at what Meta's doing with Llama 2. They're open sourcing it, being like, put this out in the world. Here's our code. Everybody can build on top of this for free, et cetera. Almost like a public service. We're creating this new free layer of infrastructure versus OpenAI, which is they're saying, you know, basically this has become so powerful that would be irresponsible to do basically exactly what Meta is doing. And in the context of this idea of the Manhattan Project, how do you think about that? Because it does feel like whether it's here or even in Washington, D.C., in the White House, there's a debate about whether this should be open or closed. In the context of a technoeconomic race with China, what matters more than anything else is winning that race. I have been, I feel like I originated the open source effort in many ways at Sun, or Sun originated the open source effort. It was the first large open source company. That concept didn't broadly exist in any company. So it's not like I don't appreciate the value of open source. We practically started it. Yep. We were the first investors in GitLab, which is the most open source software development environment, more recent example. But again, when you're in the war, and I believe war is the right term to use, Mm. you can't open source stuff and let your enemies catch up. I think there's a war of political philosophies, and I want the right side to win, and hence I'm not in favor of open source for that reason. That doesn't mean it reduces the utility of AI for things like the best doctors, free doctors, free teachers, free accountants, free lawyers, so everybody can have access to justice. All that is very likely to happen. You won't need a lawyer. You know, California has these weird bankruptcy laws. You can't file for bankruptcy actually without having a lawyer. So if you're filing for bankruptcy, you can't afford a lawyer. And there's a catch-22 there. Uh, there's nonprofit uh, I work with that's actually trying to make lawyers available for people who need to file for bankruptcy because yeah. right, right, they don't right, have right. money to pay for lawyers. It is hilarious, but frankly, it's really serious if you're yeah. in that predicament. So I do think there's massive good uses, but open sourcing isn't something that helps that cause. Maybe the rate of progress could be higher, but our enemies could go much further than us. So do you think what Meta, Meta well, is doing that, is, is dangerous or wrong? I believe it's dangerous for Meta to open source Llama 2. We have a system. We have something called journalists, not so in Putin's Russia, or at least uh, if you yeah, disagree. If you, if, with you, if you do your job properly, you might end up dead. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so... I think there's other tools. China, there's no constraint on face recognition by the nation state. They know if you're talking, if you are in China, that we affiliated. So the level of data, every child born in China today has their genome sequenced, and that's available to the state. So there's a set of things they don't care about that we care about that gives them an advantage. They're also, as uh, one of leading Chinese AI researchers said to me, we have different value system. If we are trying to win the race on driverless cars, which we are, uh, we kill a few people. That's for the greater good. That's not the way the West works. And so they can use Tiananmen Square style tactics. 
when we can. They can use data in ways we can. We give them our open source models and our creativity. I think we handicap ourselves. But I think that framing, that techno-economic war framing, is really interesting because if you even go back five years... It was purposeful. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you go back five years, like the whole idea of like Google doing something with the Pentagon or whatever, everybody was like, I don't want, we're not in a war. We don't use any of this technology for anything that would be seen as bad or something we don't like. But it feels like that is shifting, that perception. Look, there's really well-meaning people hmm. who fall in this woke category. Absolutely the right intent, fairly impractical, not pragmatic at all. And unfortunately, those, that empathy that they have, which is a really good thing, comes with a notion of sharing without realizing economic constraints. Like, we can't free everybody's uh, student debt, yep. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, and right. like, there isn't an infinite source of money. And when we spend money on student debt, we don't on healthcare uh, or national defense or something else. Right. So, you know, right intent wrong prescription from part of the world, uh, population. I tend to try and have the empathetic part from them, but the pragmatic part of how to make things work uh, from hopefully a more business sense. You said earlier about we're approaching this time where we're going to have to rethink what it means to be human. The obvious follow-on from that, especially out here, is universal basic income. Do you think that will be a requirement and how do you think about this idea of human purpose and human yeah. kind of satisfaction so, in this world? Two, in, two important axes, right? In 2014, I wrote a piece for Forbes of Fortune. I think it was Forbes. Uh, anyway, I said, AI will cause, and this was eight, 10 years ago. People must have been like, what are you what talking about? What are you talking about? Yeah, yes. For sure. AI will cause great abundance, great productivity growth. Great GDP growth, everything people measure, and increasing income disparity. That was the tagline from back then. Yeah, almost a decade ago. I've been trying to get them to republish yeah. uh, because it's much more relevant. <laughs> yeah. Nobody knew what I was talking about. That is clearly an issue. But if we can increase GDP growth from 2% to 4%, say, then per capita GDP goes from what is like $70,000 in the U.S. today to 175000 in the 2% growth scenario for 50 years to half a million dollars in the 4% growth rate. My point to do this quick math is to say there will be a lot more to share. And if we plan for it in advance and do it right, the ability to share will be far greater then we imagine today where I can't get the medical device I need because the healthcare system won't give it to me for free, while somebody else can't get an education for free or junior college for free. Those trade-offs make it very hard to imagine this kind of utopian future, but I do believe we will have the ability to share. The second part of your question, which is this issue of what does it mean to be human, I do think we will, within some period of time, have the ability, the capability, not necessarily that we'll adapt it, to make work optional. People will not need to work. They will work because they want to work, because not because they need to work. And the minimum standard will be high enough. Mm. That's possible. Now, we may not adapt it. In fact, this is a worry in the China context. 
they might use Tiananmen-style tactics to say, hey, all taxi drivers are gone, or all doctors yep. gone. Yep. We are going to use these technologies. Employment is a massive issue. So not only does the end goal matter, the transitions matter even more because they're today and next five years and what happens to me in the next 10 years, how do I retire? You know, the things humans worry about and live about, that's a real problem. Mm-hmm. And that's not a technical yeah. problem. Yeah. It's a political and democracy problem. Societal problem, yeah. It's a societal problem that we will have to worry about. But I see the ability to have humans express themselves. You know, most humans work on something like an assembly line at General Motors or Volkswagen, yeah. assembling a wheel for eight hours a day for 30 d- yeah. years. For most that, people, work is just labor that they don't like yeah. in one form or another. Yeah. And it's, it's a bad way to be a human. Now, that person could garden, hike, sing, <laughs> develop others' hobbies, skills. That's what it means to be human, to be able to express yourself, to have tools. I don't know if you saw my talk. I did. You're, I did. A, ra- you're a rapper. Yeah, apparently. I'm a rapper now, which I couldn't so, ever... Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, being free to be do what you want to do and express yourself in the ways you want to, we'll see an explosion of diversity and skills and other things. So I'm pretty optimistic. About I know that. you you have you probably have to go have one one question left that has two parts. So okay. <laughs> so I'd love to get your perspective because you've been doing this longer than most. You know, there's this, a bit of a culture war aspect to the whole AI revolution. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you saw this week Mark Andreessen put out his techno optimism yeah. techno optimism manifesto you've got effective accelerationism is yeah. becoming kind of like a, a movement mm-hmm. and it seems to be a reaction to people saying well you know you said trust us last time and this has gone horribly wrong when you talk about a lot of the social media aspects of it one is this different from things you have seen in the past this kind of culture war aspect and do you think there's a danger that we'll get so concerned that we'll kind of killed us before it really gets going. I, I read it just uh, last night, yeah. and I said, you know, I agree with 95% of it. Mm-hmm. What's missing is a focus. So, you know, he said something like, we can consume infinitely. Yeah. And I, if you slow down AI, it's equivalent to murder, yeah. he also said. Yeah. I don't buy that. It's rhetorical. Maybe he's trying to say it to I make think, a point. Yes, in, yes. In, as opposed to really. There wasn't enough empathy in the piece. Yeah. Also... A fundamental point, I was going to tweet this at him this morning, but then I haven't gotten to it. Capitalism, especially in the West, is by permission of democracy. Mm-hmm. What does convert capitalism out? Go right, go left, uh, you know. Capitalism was designed for economic efficiency. I'm not sure if it's the only thing. It's done a fabulous job in economic growth and all that purpose it was designed for, efficiency of resources. But I'm not sure efficiency is the most important piece. There was a time where efficiency was very important to more goods and services that people could consume that contributed to social happiness. I do believe income disparity, which I talked about, is an equally important variable Mm. in human happiness or social happiness. So more equal societies are happier. And I do think we now have to optimize, and this is where Mark might disagree with me, between just economic efficiency and economic disparity or equality. 
in the subtext of that is economic mobility. So yeah. it doesn't matter which economic strata you're born in, you have mm. a chance to be in any other strata, which is my whole life story. Right. So I, I do think multiple things have to be optimized in an economic system, while in the past, in the era of resource poorness, we were mostly optimizing for economic efficiency. Right. So I do think that's a fundamentally different thing than market forces at work only. Right. And I emphasize only. I'm a big believer in market forces, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I think there's additional things that make society happier and better. Finally, in that context, you clearly are taking a utopian view as opposed to a dystopian view of how this is all going to play out. But in the near term, how worried are you about the upcoming election in this era of what someone called the era of zero cost bullshit? Of like zero rampant. cost bullshit, more importantly, zero trust. Yeah. Right? We are seeing this in Gaza. Like nobody knows what story to believe, whose story, yep. where you sit is where you stand kind of yeah, uh, yeah. philosophy. Yeah. Is the Palestinians terrorists? I don't think so. Is Hamas a terrorist? Yes, but I also believe the people who say they're freedom fighters. Yeah. Right? Um, and what are the facts? Who killed which baby? Uh, who bombed the hospital? Trust is so, so fundamental to functioning of Western philosophy. Yes. I have no way to predict where it goes, hmm. but it is fundamentally at risk. Yeah. And I think we're going to see that play out in real time in yeah. the election. Did I say this today? If not today, then I said it yesterday at the Wall Street Journal live conference. I did a talk there. Mm. I said, the thing I worry about is millions and millions or hundreds of millions of Chinese bots in our network next year, immediate huge danger to society. Do you think that's going to happen? Almost certainly. Awesome. On that happy note, I'll let you go. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next up, we have Tyler Cohen economist at George Mason University, author of the Marginal Revolution blog, and general thinker of thoughts and somebody uh, who I think will help you figure out what this moment in history means for all of us. So here he is, Tyler. Enjoy. Like virtually every tech journalist on the planet, I've been writing about AI a lot, especially over the past year since the kind of the chat GPT moment. And I've been reading some of the stuff you have been writing over this past year as well. And I'd love to just get a sense from you of how you think about how we should orient ourselves in this moment. Because it feels, depending on who you talk to, it feels like we're at this really momentous kind of scary slash exciting time because this technology is just different or foundational in a way that others are not. I'd love to just get a sense from you of kind of how you're thinking about this moment. For the first time, humanity has created a kind of genuine intelligence. It's not conscious. It's not sentient. I don't think it's a general intelligence, but for matters intellectual or visual, it can perform remarkably well. It can do better than humans at many tasks within a fixed environment. And now we have it. It's a, a miracle and a blessing that the freer nations have the quality version first. And I think we now need to decide what we're going to do. To that very point, uh, that leads ex perfectly to my next question, which is, as you may or may not know, there is a big AI summit in Britain on Monday and Tuesday. Of course. 
And it's, you know, there's a lot of hullabaloo around it. While that is happening, you have a White House statement supposedly coming out next week, an executive order. You have France having its own summit. You have the UN, the EU. Everybody is trying to kind of, I think genuinely, but also some cynically, like show that they're on top of this, that they are thinking about this. Is there a historic analog to this type of arrival of the technology and also again when we're thinking about you know this ai summit for example which appears to be very focused on existential threat i don't know if that's the right focus but one yeah do you have a sense of historical analogs and also is there anything we can learn from how the world has reacted to similar kind of huge technological shifts for me the closest historical analog is the printing press which also spread a kind of intelligence. But that was a much, much slower process. So if you think of Gutenberg as being in the mid-15th century, well, books are still quite expensive for a long time. And arguably, it's not until almost 200 years later that the printing press truly has a major impact on a lot of Europe. It advances science, commerce, has all sorts of benefits, but it disrupts established orders, Arguably, it's one factor feeding into wars of religion, definitely a factor in the Reformation. So a lot of sclerotic institutions, universities also needed to be redone. So I think we're seeing a sped up version of that in a way that will be wonderful, make most people much better off. But yes, it will be scary. And uh, it will require all of our emotional and intellectual resources to really manage it well. What is your view on the doomsters? Because it is, I'll say, as a journalist, when you have somebody from inside the industry, like a Jeff Hinton, for example, from Google, who quit Google, who's the father of neural networks, who's coming out and saying like, oh my God, this thing is really scary, actually. It's kind of like a lot of people have compared that kind of like to Oppenheimer and him realizing the destructive power of this thing that he has built. What is your sense of that sense of doom, especially when it comes from people who seem to know, or at least it seem to be coming from a place of knowledge about, oh, this is going to be terrible versus the other people being like, look, this, these machines don't have brains. They're not going to kind of achieve sentience and all of a sudden decide they want to you know, rule the planet and enslave all of us. I mean, how do you think about that dichotomy when we're thinking about this stuff? Well, I think Oppenheimer is the perfect example. As an American, or I think as a British person, I'm very glad he did what he did. The alternative was some other nation doing it. We've, in fact, managed the nuclear era relatively well. It's probably limited a lot more war than it has caused. But I've issued the following challenge to the doomers. I mean, I've said this to me looks like pseudoscience. I've said, be like the climate change people. Publish this in referee journals. Make your case. Have it stand the test of time. There's basically no published model of this in peer-reviewed referee journals. Models of what? Actually try to model how doom may come about in a model where there are also cooperative forces suggesting doom will not come about, figure out relevant parameter values, try to measure them. Whatever it is you think ought to be done, do it in the arena of science. I, I will listen. I've even volunteered to peer review some of those papers for free. So I hope people do that. But in the meantime, the burden of proof is on them. This is a national security issue. It's a highly popular consumer product. It's just not the way the world works, that you just stop on these things. 
especially not with China on the scene. So my view is we're going to get this. Let's get the better version. Let's work toward that. Safety is important. I fly in airplanes all the time. I'm very grateful for airplane safety. I want AI safety too. But right now, the doomsters are losing the argument. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And I would submit that they're doing themselves a disservice because if you just say, we have just created the doomsday machine and it's only a matter of time before we all die, like somebody like Eliezer Yudkowsky, for example, among others, there is no answer to that, right? There is no practical answer to we're all going to die. And the fact that they're the ones who did it, it's a little unusual, right? So I think psychologically, it's often a strange way indirectly, subconsciously of boasting how much power they've created. As an ordinary American citizen, part of me is like, look, if you believe this, what were you doing all these years? So something here doesn't add up. <laughs> That's fair. I, I, I want to also get your, your, um, your view. So I was at a conference last week, and I interviewed a guy, Vinod Kosla. I'm sure you've heard of him. Sure. He's the founder of Sun Microsystems and was one of the kind of popularizers and somebody who really benefited from this idea of open source, open source software that you put out there, Linux, and everybody can use it and build on it. It gets better and better and better, et cetera. And there's this huge debate going on in AI. We have open AI on one side saying, basically, this is so powerful to your point. Maybe it's a bit of boasting here. This thing is so powerful that we need to keep it closed trust us, we're going to develop this responsibly. We've heard this story before, but we cannot open sources. That is dangerous. And then on the other side, you have Meta, $800 billion company who is like, no, we're open sourcing it. We're doing our Llama 2 large language model. Anybody can use it. Anybody can build on top of it. And there, there's a real debate, I understand, both in Silicon Valley and in Washington, D.C., in all the way to the White House of what's the appropriate way? And I interviewed Vinod Kosla last week and he said, what you're talking about is basically open sourcing the Manhattan Project. 
And he's like, we are in a techno-economic war with China. They're developing this too. They're going to use it in ways that we're not comfortable with, et cetera. And why should we help them by giving away our secrets, by giving, you know, basically handing them the Manhattan Project? China already has open source AI. The UAE, of all places, built Falcon, one of the best open source models. So the cat's out of the bag. Keep in mind, you're also open sourcing safety defense, deterrence, improvements. So I think it's absolutely true. We need to work hard to build more good stuff before other people build more bad stuff. This is not a new dynamic. We've been faced with it since the 19th century or even earlier. And it's a real challenge. People are right to be concerned. But the US and UK stopping, that's a guarantee we lose. Absolutely. And keep in mind, China, whatever you think of their intentions, that's a country that either recently has done lab leak, or you could call it wet market leak, one or the other. Are they so safe we should be leaving this to them? Again, I just don't see the argument there. No, no. And I think, but I think what he's saying is like, we cannot open source. Basically, what Meta do, is doing, in his words, is dangerous because you're giving the nuclear secrets to our enemies. Our enemies have those nuclear secrets, whether we like it or not. Russia has open source AI. You could debate how good it is compared to ours. I don't know. But it will get better. The idea that you know the FTC does something with Meta and all of a sudden the problem goes away, that's just not realistic. Well, yeah, that's what I think is kind of interesting, especially when you talk about earlier this year when you had all these people saying, you know, let's have a six-month pause, which one seemed totally random. And to your point, this stuff is developing so quickly, just a random six-month pause that everybody agrees upon. It just seemed fanciful, and I didn't understand what the point of it was. You solve problems by confronting them, in my view. But again, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish. We face a huge challenge, not just with China, but just making sure our own stuff does what it's supposed to do. Same was true with nuclear weapons, electricity, most other technologies. One of the things that I we have covered in the past are things like deep fakes and kind of misinformation, disinformation, kind of synthetic information. We're heading toward a big election in America. In terms of your kind of ranking of things that scare you, where does this be coming up to be like the first AI election where it is basically now free or close to free to create extremely believable and massive amounts of misinformation or propaganda or whatever you want to call it. And this kind of this erosion of you can actually even trust what your eyes see or your ears hear. It's not in my top 500 list of worries. It's not top 500. Not top 500. Maybe I'll go further. Look, Trump <laughs> lied about the election being stolen. That was a free lie. I mean, he just said it. It's gained a lot of currency. He didn't need AI. He didn't need a fake video of someone stuffing ballot boxes. Some people wanted to believe it. Very recent times, the New York Times says the Israelis bombed a hospital, killed 500. They published a photo of something that wasn't even the hospital, got basically every angle of the story wrong, not using AI, set off you know riots and protests around the Arab world. So this is a very real problem. I would just point out it's already free to do this. It happens. It's terrible. AI does not really change the calculus very much. So I'm not going to ask you for your top 500. <laughs> Hot number one is nuclear war. This I'm pretty sure of. 
Number one is nuclear yeah. war. Climate change would be in the top five, but it's not number yeah. one. So focusing specifically on AI, what is your kind of five-year view on how this develops? Because we've already seen, we've had coders on this podcast who have like, you know, these co-pilots, it's like you have been gifted a superpower. All of a sudden you are 50% more efficient than you were the day before you started using it. That's obviously going to have huge effects on that industry. But when you think about kind of work disruption, where we should be looking to where we start to see some real profound impacts, what are you thinking about? I think the human bottlenecks are pretty severe and things will take longer than many people realize. So just getting businesses, universities, nonprofits to properly use GPT-4, which could soon be obsolete, right? An old model. In the last year, not that much has happened. A lot has happened with coders. I think it will be slow. There's a lot of legal issues, teaching people how to use it. A lot of institutions don't have high enough levels of trust to make a big switch. They just use AI models or large language models as a kind of add-on to what they do. So I think in 20 years, it will have a, a huge impact. But in five years, we'll still be somewhat limping along, even though the AI will be much smarter. Well, it's interesting. There's been this kind of you know, and this happens with virtually every kind of hype cycle. You have this huge, you know, GPT arrived and everybody's like, oh my God, this thing can write poetry and sitcoms and pass standardized tests and this is incredible. And then you had a bunch of companies, AI startups, who got huge amounts of money on huge funding rounds. And then already you're starting to see them lay people off. You're starting to see their customers stopped paying for their products because they realized this isn't really a product. It's kind of an interesting toy that doesn't, isn't quite fully formed yet. So do you expect we're kind of entering, not necessarily a trough, but maybe coming back to earth a bit? People's expectations will come back to earth. I think the technologies will still advance. But here's something that eventually will be common, but I think we're far from it. You know, I'm sure you've seen Star Trek or Spock or someone, they go to the computer, they just speak to it, it tells them everything. Institutions will arrange their information in new and much better ways where it is not siloed, it's accessible, it can be analyzed, graphed, whatever, ask for advice. It will do everything. But when you actually think through any institution you've been in and you ask, what are the legal issues? What are the privacy issues? How do we get people to actually do this? How do we retrain everyone? Again, most of it is not going to happen in the next five years, even though technically it's already on the verge of being feasible. You know, at what cost per token is another question. But some version of this we could do now, but it's not in most institutions. It's not in my university, and I'll predict it's not in your newspaper. It is not. Now, that's okay. Maybe, in part, the process is manageable because of human inertia, Nonetheless, I think the 20-year impact is where it will really matter. Well, it reminds me a little bit of crypto. I enjoyed, <laughs> you had an interview with Mark Andreessen where you were trying to drill down into like, you know, how crypto actually works and what the utility is. And there was a lot of kind of like hand-waving and vagaries and there was never a really a clear answer. And I think part of that is AI seems like just on its face far more useful in a very clear way. Crypto, much less so. But they both, I think, 
suffer from this idea of like, well, there's this magic new technology and it's just going to take over without taking into account that human systems and companies and societies are just these intricate webs of stuff of inertia. And you, unpicking that is way more complex than certainly Silicon Valley would, would like to believe. Strong agree. I would add the point. I think AI will save crypto. Oh, that's interesting. Please explain. Well, as we're speaking, Bitcoin's at 33,000. I don't know where the price yes. will end up, but that's not so bad, right? But look, the AIs will need monies to trade with each other. We're not going to let them have normal bank accounts, whether or not we should. We're not going to let them right away. <laughs> so they're going to need a medium of exchange, and I predict it will be crypto. Why will they need a medium of exchange? Well, they'll do work for each other. So for instance, you'll say you're an entrepreneur, you build an AI bot that does proofreading or language translation, but it doesn't have all yep. capabilities. You send it out there to finish a task, it will trade with other AI bots. Now we could come back to you each time and ask for your permission that you make a transfer from your checking account. I mean, clearly some of that will happen, but I think people will also have AIs that just trade crypto with each other. And do it, you know, without having to ask you, the owner. Right, right, right. And you can set kind of limits on it. You know, once you get to 100 bucks, then check in with me. Yeah, but in the meantime, you want to make a trade, $70 in crypto for help with this translation. The different AIs will do it. You may not even know about it. And at the end of the year, your AI's crypto, you'll cash back into, you know, pound sterling, whatever, and it'll work just fine. I'm interested in this concept I was reading before we got on. You wrote about moving history and living in this moment of moving history and that basically I'm 45 and like life has been pretty, am I 45? I'm 46. Oh my God. I'm 61. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so you're 61. I'm 46. For most of our lives, the world has been pretty static in terms of like big foundational changes to how things work. Yes. People think social media is huge, but it's not. By historical yeah, standards, right. it's like of moderate importance. So I was wondering if you just give a bit of that context of, again, going back to this moment we're living in with AI, do you think this is a kind of a one of those moving history type moments? That is what I believe. We will have to reconceptualize who we are, what is our intelligence, what are we truly good at, what does beauty mean to us, will we let an AI help raise our kids? How does it intersect with religion? Uh, how do I know what job I'll have, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now? All this will change, and we are not psychologically equipped for this. So this, I think, is the greatest danger, is the intersection of dynamic with AI, with our rather static attitudes, status quo bias, inertia, and sclerotic institutions. We'll manage, but it's going to be interesting, shall we say. Do you have children? She's 33, yes. When you're thinking about this stuff, do you have any advice for her? I, I have, as I said, I have very young kids, four and six. So I'm really trying to figure out how to steer them in a way into this kind of, again, going back to this idea of moving history, where we're kind of in this period of what are going to be some pretty big fundamental changes, printing press type moment, how to kind of steer them in a way so they don't end up living a, a life that doesn't have meaning or gives them a sense of value or prosperity? Now, I'm asked this question almost every day by people who write to mm. me. I tell them, I don't think anyone 
can plot through where everything is headed, but stay on top of developments. Try to learn things in small bites. Don't let it scare or intimidate you. And get in a group of people with common interests who are trying to figure out what's happening. That's, I think, the best I can say to most people. And you're a professor. How are you already changing what you're doing in terms of how you're teaching, how you're approaching instruction in a world where, again, you know, you have these computers now that can write. I mean, I've tested it out. It's like kind of all very circular and unopinionated, the writing from these machines. But it's, you know, this is the worst it's, it will ever be. It's only going to get better from here. How have you changed or have you changed how you teach, instruct, help students? Completely changed. So I taught a writing class last spring where traditionally the students had to submit three papers. And this last year of those three papers, one had to be co-authored with GPT or Claude or something. And then they had to explain what they did, what worked, what didn't work. And this way they learn how to work with it. This was a law class. So my syllabus for my spring class in economics, the syllabus will just be A, the internet, B, GPT-4. And I'm going to hand that out. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. But yes, everything has to change. Did you find anything interesting that emerged from that experiment of having people write on their own that write with the GPT, basically the GPT co-pilot? I think two-thirds of them really liked it. You know, when I first announced this, the first week of class, this was right before GPT was a known thing. They just looked at me like I'm crazy. More than half of them didn't even know re really what it was. Or maybe they'd heard of it. They didn't know what, how it worked. But then by, by the second week, that the wave of publicity had hit. And they're all excited. And it's basically, well, it's mostly people about to graduate. No one had taught them this yet. Like, how could they have? And this was their chance to, to learn in university a skill they all knew by then they, they, they were going to need to have. It's fascinating. Um, so we are speaking via computer, which it's kind of funny when we kind of, all these incremental advances, all of a sudden you get to a place where like, I, we are living in a Star Trek future or a total recall future where it's like speaking via crystal clear video telecommunications through a tiny screen. But it makes me think, you know, there's a lot of effort right now, well, for years now, to kind of move beyond the smartphone, to move to the next thing, the next interface. Have you put any thought or do you have any sense of how AI will kind of supercharge that? Because it feels like if you have something that just understands you, you know, my kind of pet theory or the way I think about it is this AI moment is basically boils down to computers have cracked the human operating system. They understand us now. We don't have to have some kind of specialized language to interface with them. So if you have something that just kind of understands you on a level like never before, it feels like maybe how we interact with our technology won't be a little black mirror in our pocket. We're going to have new devices. And I think fairly soon. So I think the first step will be, have you seen the meta glasses? Yeah. I think something like that will work. Which glasses are you talking about? They're Ray-Bans or they're kind of the actual goggles? They're not available yet. Mark did a video where they showed off and it's coming yeah. within a few months, I think priced at $1,400, $1,500. But they're AI powered. So you can look at things 
an AI right. will yes, yes, write yes, for you, talk yeah. to you, whatever, whatever you ask it to do. So I think step one will be you'll have glasses and through something like Bluetooth, they'll communicate with your current iPhone. But I think over time in what we now call the iPhone, the browser will be displaced. There'll be an AI central interaction. Browser will hardly be used. And the AI device in your new box will, will rule the phone. And I think a lot of the power from AI is the integration of visual and audio and text. And the current iPhone is not perfectly designed to do that. So either Apple will redesign it or some other company will pull this off. And then, yes, it will be a very new and different device. That feels like the seeds for either doubling down of domination of one of the big tech giants or the emergence of a giant new trillion dollar company. Because whoever cracks that first or cracks that most effectively, that's going to be a very big company. That's right. It's going to be hard. You've probably read OpenAI is at least exploring the idea. Now, maybe they would do it in a partnership. Apple has great access to supply chains, a lot of experience running supply chains. I don't have a specific prediction. It's just that ultimately the browser is somewhat inefficient and we're going to replace it. And again, this integration of audio, visual, text, everything you want according to your commands, uh, that's what the current iPhone doesn't do very well. But it hasn't mattered until now. Like Siri is terrible, right? I know. It's incredible. It really is incredible uh, how bad it is, given that they've been working on it for 15 years or whatever. Going back to this AI summit in the UK, it feels like there's almost a competition to regulate AI. And again, I don't really understand how that's going to take shape, given how fast this stuff is moving and how, you know, um, that, as you say, the cat is already out of the bag. Do you have a sense of where the UK might fit in all of this, given that it's not home to any of the big tech companies where a lot of this foundational work is going on? And neither is Europe, for that matter. Will that mean that necessarily this will take shape in the way that the US and or China see fit? I think within the Western world, UK will be a clear number two. You have a background in AI. You have two truly top universities a lot of AI has come from the UK, as you know, DeepMind in London. The United States trusts you, and you will be the AI capital of Europe and some number of other parts of the world. And I think it will be uh, quite good for your economy and reputation. In terms of jobs, in terms of work, and again, I don't know if printing press is the answer here, but it feels like what's different about this technological leap is that technology up to this point has largely been about automating brawn or, you know, physical labor. And this is a technology that actually takes on cognitive work. What is your sense of what that means for the economy, for productivity, for jobs, for what it means to work? I think carpenters and gardeners will see big pay hikes. There'll just be a lot more new <laughs> projects everywhere. Uh, not everyone will gain. But keep in mind, even a very smart AI, it's not a general intelligence. What it cannot do at all mm. is integrate the physical world with its smarts. And so much of what you do when you actually think it through involves doing something also in the physical world. 
So I think we'll stay at full employment uh, for the indefinite future unless we make other mistakes in policy. But AI won't be the issue. One of the examples that occurs to me is like the arrival of the ATM machine back in the early 70s. Everybody's like, oh, my God, this is the end of the banking teller. And there was like, whatever, hundreds of thousands at the moment at that time. But what it ended up doing was actually increasing bank teller numbers because it made it more economic to open more branches in more places. Do you think that's what we're kind of looking at that to that point around full employment, that this will actually be an accelerant rather than the end of work as we know it? I would say a skewed accelerant, but yes, an accelerant. And especially if it's packaged with fairly cheap green energy, we'll just be able to settle many more parts of the world. And that will create so many new projects of different kinds involving, yes, it's physical labor, but it's smart physical labor. I mean, just digging a ditch, we can already do that better with machines. So people who can integrate their bodies and their minds, I think will do phenomenally well. And then people who can manage AIs will do phenomenally well. If you're right now doing mid-level routine office work, probably you'll be worse off and you'll need to find something else. How does this go wrong? We're at the end of 2023. It feels like to the point around this, like all of these summits and executive orders, it kind of feels, at least to me out here in Silicon Valley, like a bunch of noise. No one's paying attention to that. People are just plowing ahead and building this stuff. Is there a way where you see, oh man, this is this is how this could go really wrong, or this is where we could take a real misstep and kind of set the industry back or set the world back in terms of your kind of spectrum of bad stuff? Is there anything in particular you're thinking about? Well, the expected value of intelligence, more intelligence, is high, quite high, I think. But intelligence always can be misused. And in human history, often it has been misused. So every technological advance that I know of also has been used by the bad guys. And I don't think that pattern will change. So we're going to see some use of any new technology. Drones are another example. There's AI in drones, but that aside, also used by the bad guys. So I think the nations with values we're more sympathetic to, democracy, liberty, we need to keep a lead. The bad case scenarios are when we lose that lead. It's not in danger this year not even next year, but over a 10-year horizon, it could happen. You know, I've talked to some people in the in the defense industry about AI, and they've used this term that AI is the fourth offset, as in there were three before, and I think it was the arrival of nukes, then precision-guided missiles or ICBMs that could deliver them anywhere around the world, and I can't remember what the third one was. But that AI is the fourth, and the fourth offset being as soon as someone gains a clear advantage, you have lost the war before it even started. And that there is a sense of extreme high stakes competition between the West and China, and especially when you look at things like Taiwan, etc. Is that something you're thinking about? Do you agree with that kind of viewpoint that this is existential in the same way that like the nuclear arms race was? I think about that every day. I think the version of it you presented is more dramatic than the worries I have. But, I mean, the, directionally, it, it's correct. So is China going to one day wake up with a better AI and press one button and kill us all? No. But they would have a, you know, a strong upper hand in a lot of world affairs and would get their way instead of us getting our way. And the world would become much worse. 
So of course that's a fear and it could happen. Do you have a sense that the right people are sufficiently worried about that? In other words, that are thinking hard about that and trying to keep that from happening? The American national security establishment, in my opinion, is very sophisticated on this issue. Now, America, with so many checks and balances, that's not enough for good things to happen, right? Other parties can always come up the works. But so far, I think we've managed this pretty well. The companies that are working on it are responsible, led by very smart people who are, in fact, patriotic. It's no guarantee of good outcomes. But the the hand of cards we've been dealt, it's a pretty good one. It sounds like you are broadly optimistic that this is, it's kind of going back to your printing press analogy. Yes, it brought us Mao's Red Book and lots of other terrible things. But broadly, this is a very good thing for humans. Correct. You would never press the no button on the printing press. Right. And same goes for work, that it's going to be, as you say, a skewed accelerant. When you look at that skewing Where is it going skewing for and kind of against? Well, in the short run, I think parts of the Philippines and, say, Hyderabad in India will be hit the hardest. And that's a very real humanitarian cost. A bit after that, it would be, you know, some mid-tier office jobs in the U.S. But we actually went through that just by having Microsoft and software. So that's a sort of familiar problem to us to take away a lot of office jobs, right? A lot of them are gone already. You're talking about the Philippines and Hyderabad. Are you talking about basically outsourced? Call centers, help centers, people who speak English, do a quite good job, are are quite reliable, make a much better living than the other job they would have, but maybe after a while will not be cheaper than AI. Again, this depends how rapidly the cost of tokens goes down. Uh, Hard for me to predict, but I think at some point the AI will just be cheaper and not worse. Well, that's what I think is really interesting, right, is like just how profound a lot of this stuff is when you talk about some the arrival of technology that can basically render the call center obsolete. And all of a sudden you have, I don't know, pick a number, a million people out of a job in a country that needs jobs. That feels like a very real social problem. And I don't know if people are fully alive to the kind of the freight train coming toward them. I don't think they are, but keep in mind, these same countries, there'll be a universal tutor available to all school children in any language, maybe not literally for free, but close to for free. There will be, not will be, is already high quality medical diagnosis at the margin, more or less for free for all humans. Some very significant benefits. The impact on the sciences, biomedicine will mean a lot more diseases get cured, Malaria, we're already making big progress on. So many of the problems in these same locations will get much better pretty quickly. So it's an accelerant of many things, not just job loss. And most of those things are good. And then finally, just circling back to where we kind of started, the doomerism that us journalists love to, to write about and interview people about, it does feel a bit one-dimensional of like, this is bad, we're all going to die. When as the picture you're laying out is much more balanced of, yes, millions of people might lose their current jobs, but then they may have access to new educational opportunities that they didn't because they have a free AI tutor and they can learn something new that may be better, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, it's much more nuanced than just this is thing is going to 
change everything for the better or it's going to destroy humanity. It's the, the messy middle. It will be a messy but wonderful history that I feel privileged to be able to witness. You're 61. And according to the people I interview out here all the time, you'll probably live to 120, 130. I don't think so. <laughs> Do you personally anticipate anything where you're really like excited about how your life is going to change because of this? Well, it's already changed. I don't know if you know this, but Monday I published my latest book. I call it a generative book. I published it in GPT-4. What do you mean you published it in GPT-4? That there's an app you can open. And if you want, you can just read the book as you would read a PDF online, send it to your Kindle. Yeah. But you can interrogate GPT-4 about the book, ask for summaries, ask for further detail, ask to turn you know a chapter into a limerick, ask for a multiple choice quiz. So the, the book and the GPT, there's a, a Claude 2 app coming soon on the page, they've melded together. So to the best of my knowledge, this is the first such generative book. And I mean, that's a big life career decision for me to do this. It's sort of a crazy thing. But I think it will be a big deal. And uh, I'm very glad I did it. Why'd you get there? Or how did you get there with the decision to do that? And what were the upsides and downsides for you personally? Because, you know, your job is getting your views, Tyler Cowen's views out in the world and communicating. And so this is a different, you know, it's a pretty big change. Well, it means zero revenue for me. I'm willing to live with that. Uh, but I think more people will be attracted to my ideas. I mean, they can, the book is written by me. They can just read the book. And if they interact with the GPT interpretation of the book, I mean, that's fine. Every reader takes away his or her interpretation anyway. Authors need to live with that. And if someone just wants to ask GPT, what are the five anecdotes from this work I can take to the cocktail party and toss it away? You know, our egos need some readjustment. I want to let them do that. But if they want to spend three weeks studying the book and go down all these rabbit holes with GPT, they can do that too. So I think it's a big improvement. It shouldn't be done for every book. Not everyone wants it. I get that. But uh, I wanted to, you know, be the first person to do this. And I've done it. So plug it, where exactly can we find this book? It's on a website, econgoat.ai. That's E-C-O-N-G-O-A-T dot A-I, free, no ads. We don't take your data, nothing. You can just read it, use it, do whatever you want. And it came out on Monday? Came out on Monday. But you wrote it? I wrote it, totally written by a human. Right. Full, Me. Full. <laughs> but you can trade in my version for its version, right? So I have to compete. You can ask it for referee reports on any chapter. It's a tough metric to put yourself up against, I think. I think in two years, a lot of your pieces, podcasts, feature stories, they'll be embedded in some kind of GPT-like wrapper, and your readers will have the same option. They'll, they'll be like, tell me more. Right. So I'll say a sentence and people will be like, because I used to read this, do this all the time. I'll read a story and be like, I don't think that's true, but... You know, you don't want to kind of go off and find it. But if there's a GPT wrapper, you can ask, ask the story and it will give you an answer. Exactly. So you'll be doing the same quite soon, in my opinion, whether you want to or not. It's a brave new world. It's a brave new world. Yes. <laughs> um, great. Any, anything else that you think is worth 
keeping in mind when we think about this idea of moving history and moving to this tumult, uh, good and bad, that we probably haven't experienced uh, in our lifetimes. People just need to learn how to use it well. A lot of people try it, they're disillusioned. Maybe they're even only using 3.5, not the paid version of 4 or not Claude 2. So I would just say to listeners, if you're right now disappointed, just put in a bit more time and figure out how to make it work for you because it's coming. And uh, why not be ready? Exactly. Last question, given that I'm here and Google is one of the biggest companies on planet Earth and their whole model is search. And you mentioned earlier the idea of a search engine going away. Do you think that's an inevitability? And do you have any sense of what that might mean? You know, especially in the history of economics, big companies who are kind of disrupted and destroyed. Do you think it is an existential threat for companies like Google in particular, if, you know, all of a sudden your device can just answer your question? Well, Google has Gemini, its own large language model, coming out either December or early 2024, but I would say this, if you take current Google, my workflow right now is 80% large language models and 20% Google. So Google's already lost. What was that mix a year ago, pre-November 2022? 100% Google, zero large language models. So to go from 100% to 20 in basically a year, that's pretty radical. Now, most people aren't there yet, but they're going to get there. But Google will be fine, right? They have their own product coming. It's getting good advance, gossip. I'm not worried about Google or Alphabet as a company. Well, look, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's super fascinating. I'm going to go check out your book and ask it some questions, which is such a weird sentence to even say. <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> and that is it for this week's edition of Danny in the Valley. Thank you to Vinod and Tyler for taking the time. Thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors about the pod. That is it for me this week. We'll be back next week with another pod. I can't promise it's going to be another uh, double feature. But anyhow, that is it for me this week. Find my stuff at thetimes.co.uk this weekend. We'll have lots of stuff up, I promise you. So do keep an eye out for that, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.